Hey, this is Mark. Thank you so much for joining us again at the Parlay in All Blue. If this is your first time, welcome. Uh, remember to follow, share, like, and continue to uh, check in with us. We appreciate you. In this episode, there's so much here. There's so many nuggets, so I won't spend a lot of time up front on the intro. The episode tells its own story, but I will say that representation matters. Representation in history matters. Black representation in history matters a whole lot because there's so many times that things are obfuscated, mistold, or just plain erased. So this episode will give you an idea of what's possible. What people have done, people will do. You will hear a fascinating and engaging story and the life of building and achieving from financier and entrepreneur Calvin Bismail. Hope you enjoy. So Calvin Bismail, welcome to the Parlay in All Blue. How are you, sir? I am well today. Today is a good day and thank you for having me. Oh, hey, listen, thank you for being here. And you look quite distinguished. You look like you're going to close a deal right now. So I will re- I will try to uh, up up my game to match your attire, and your distinguished distinguishedness. Well, let, let me say that meeting your audience is a big deal for me. So all right. Well, <laughs> I appreciate it and we appreciate it so much. So just want to start um just to give the audience a, a perspective on your your background, you're a Chicagoan originally, right? Born and raised in Chicago. So. You know, actually, I was born in New Jersey, Inglewood, New Jersey. Okay. Uh, my father was uh, working. He was the fifth black uh, chartered life underwriter in the country. Mm. And he was working for a black insurance company in Harlem called United Mutual. And we had he built a house in Inglewood, New Jersey. He's born and raised in Harlem. And when I was five years old, he got recruited to Chicago to work for Supreme Life Insurance Company, another black insurance company. So when I was five, 1961, uh, we, we moved to Chicago, Illinois, and uh, I started uh, kindergarten in Chicago in an area called Lake Meadows. And it, it was like an oasis. It was like a suburb in the middle of the city. It was really different. We had no more than 35 students per class up through the eighth grade. Uh, and we had students from all over the world, from India, from um, Sweden, Norway. Um, it was a, the community was, I guess, a potpourri, uh, like United Nations, really. So uh, that was, um, I was fortunate in, in that regard. Uh, went to high school in Hyde Park, uh, close to the University of Chicago at a school called Kenwood High School. It's now called Kenwood Academy. Yes. Very integrated community, uh, Hyde Park, very integrated community. A lot of our instructors in high school were professors from the University of Chicago. Again, another fortunate uh, situation for me, uh, gave me some very well-rounded exposure to a number of things. But there's very active environment. You know, you had, you know, the, uh, you know, you had the Blackstone Rangers, you had the Black Panthers, you had SDS, you know, you had the Weathermen, you had all of these, these groups. Uh, that uh, these factions going on in Chicago area as I was growing up. And as a result, you know, you, you are exposed to a lot of different philosophies. You know, you have the Nation of Islam there. You know, you have Elijah Muhammad's house was two blocks from where I went to high school. So uh, a, lot of, a lot of different influences. Yeah, you know, what's interesting about that, I'm a Chicagoan as well, and... Um, 
Um, the Hyde Park area is really one of the only real integrated areas in the city even now. I think people don't understand how heavily segregated um, Chicago is. So that's interesting that you were there and in, in the Hyde Park and, and being able to take in uh, what I would what I would say is really uh, quite an urbane area and uh, be able to take in all that was around you. So you moved from from New York with your family. Now, is your is your father from the West Indies or is he from down south or where? Where? Oh, well, good, good question. Uh, my my great great grandparents grandparents uh, came from. Um, Came through Barbados and okay. uh, and and I have relatives in Suriname, Curacao, Aruba, and uh, so he is from the West Indies. My dad's uh, background goes into West Indies. My mother is, on the other hand, from Fayetteville, Georgia, just a little okay. bit south of the airport here. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's okay, this is an interesting, uh, interesting mix, but very in line with the uh, the diaspora. Now, your family was involved with uh, Operation Push in Chicago. You talked about the many influences in Chicago. Operation Push was there as well. Uh, yeah, my dad uh, worked for Supreme Life, which was at the time, uh, eventually was owned by John Johnson of Johnson Publishing, who owned Ebony and Jet. And when Dr. King was killed, there was an initiative that Jesse had started in Chicago called Operation Breadbasket. Yep. Um, and eventually uh, what Jesse Jackson did is he broke away from Breadbasket and he established uh, PUSH, People United to, to, to Save Humanity. And, and he want, he, he, his big idea at the time was to do an exposition, a PUSH Expo at the old Chicago Stockyards. Yes. Um, and the convention center there. And so John Johnson dispatched my father as executive on loan to push to help him uh, plan uh, that first push expo in 1972. Mm. So that was my father's involvement with the first push expo. And uh, that around the time I first got exposed to, to Reverend Jackson. Before then, I, I would listen to him on on um, the radio on Saturday mornings. So I was definitely influenced by that. And my mother, who uh, went to Washington High School here in Atlanta, went to Spelman College and Atlanta University. She was working on her dissertation at Atlanta University, went to visit her sister who lived in New York uh, in the summer. And her and her best friend were there. And her best friend said, well, you know, you need to take a break from studying. You need to go with me to this uh, Omega boat ride. You might meet your future husband. Lo and behold, that's where my mother and father met on the Omega boat ride. He's not an Omega, but okay. he was on the boat ride. And they um, they ultimately got married. And uh, he built a house in New Jersey until he got recruited to Chicago. But I mentioned that because my mother was at Spelman at the same time Martin Luther King was at Morehouse. Okay. And and he actually came to visit us in Inglewood, New Jersey. I don't remember. I was around 18 months old or so. And he um, came by the house and then made a speech at our church. And my dad recorded that speech. It's the only recording of that speech that exists. And, and so my mother had a great influence on me in terms of connecting me uh, to, to, to Morehouse and to Dr. King. And, you know, what, Dr. what Reverend Jackson was doing in Operation Breadbasket 
was really where Martin was transitioning to That's in right. terms of focus on economics. Yeah. And, you know, that um, there's a wonderful um, documentary. It's, it was on HBO, but it describes uh, sort of King's last year, Dr. King's last years and uh, in 1967, the time he spent on the west side of Chicago and um, and moving the civil rights to to the north and then in economics. Um, really, really tragic that uh, for many reasons that that work didn't uh, didn't continue. But so you went then to to Morehouse and uh, tell me what Morehouse was like when you were there. Well, I, I'll tell you a little story about how I got there, because when I was at uh, at Kenwood, I I was in uh, honors classes, just had some advanced placement classes, but I, I had a jock mentality. I was playing basketball, I was playing football. And I really, uh, to some degree, was, was not as focused on my academics as, as, as some would have liked. And um, however, I, I, I got injured, uh, I got injured uh, playing football, a knee injury, and I had surgery, same doctor operated on Gail Sayers and Dick Buckus. Uh, none of us were ever the same. Uh, Dick Buckus, I think, sued him. But it was the old-fashioned way. Uh, so I got, I went into surgery in July and got a cane for Christmas. Uh, so they changed my cast three times. Mm. And uh, I was on crutches. Uh, I had been president of my class up to that point as well. Very outgoing guy. So it changed my life. Uh, and, you know, the first time I wasn't president of my class, was the first time I couldn't play any sports. So I, I became rather introspective. And okay. it was probably the best thing that happened to me to make me focus on some other, other things. And as a result of that, when it came time for me to graduate and, and go to college, my mother had walked me around the campus when I was three in Morehouse, said, you're going to Morehouse. But I didn't want to go. Okay. And then my father who didn't go to Morehouse, he said, well, why don't you just take a week and spend your spring break down there and make up your own mind? I said, oh, that's a great idea. It made sense to me. And I did. And I went down and I saw some of the guys that were ahead of me in high school who were there. You know, there was no air conditioning in the dorms. Uh, the food was terrible. Uh, uh-huh. the professors, they told me, were unforgiving. But I did enjoy the conversation amongst the brothers. That was very attractive to me. Yeah. And then on that first day, and I was living in the guest hall in the oldest building on campus. They had a little air conditioning unit in the window. So I was living really good compared to uh, right, right. the students. They were recruiting you. Yeah. And so I, uh, and then they said, well, it's that afternoon. They said, well, we're going to go on over here to the yard. I didn't know what they were talking about. So we walked up Chestnut Street at the time. It's Brawley Drive now. And we, we went in the front gate of Spelman. And then we sat in front of the cafeteria at dinner time. And uh, I remember calling my dad at six o'clock that evening. I said, you know what? This is not such a bad place after all. I can tough it out. So, but it turned out to be the best, best decision for me. And, it, so. it, and because of now and, and later, I ultimately uh, went to uh, work at Morehouse for three years. But and I started as director of recruitment. Okay. So uh, for and I would tell parents. Uh, you know, Morehouse fails to be for every young man. However, for certain young men, there's no finer place in the world because this is the only place in the world that does what we do. Uh, it's the only place on the planet that's focused on educating a population of around 2,000 or so African-American or black men, whether they're black men or, or just men, uh, for consequential type leadership 
um, and it's just about them and supportive of them. Uh, and, and, and they will be nurtured, they will be cared for, and then they will join, a, be part of a lineage and a legacy of service to our community. So uh, for me, it was the, the fellowship amongst the other brothers that you could now meet and connect with and develop these friendships that you have a lifetime with people who uh, look like you, who thought like you, who you could collaborate with to make things, to have impact, have a positive impact on things. Uh, and that's rare. And I, I, I understood that once I, uh, dis- you know, when I decided to go, I, for me, it was a great opportunity to experiment with some, some things, some ideas. And one thing I found is anybody in the world that had any interest in, in, in meeting, they came through that campus during my four years. And that includes David Rockefeller. I mean, it, it just, whoever it was, you know, Robert Mugabe, uh, Warth Dean Muhammad, it, Atlanta was a magnet and the AU Center uh, was a magnet as well, even unto itself, a global magnet. Those are the things that I benefited from. Uh, contrary to popular belief, it was not the uh, sitting in at front of the cafeteria at dinner time was not the only reason. That wasn't okay. the only reason. There was, well, you know what? You had some good reasons. And I will say this that um, during my time in uh, corporate and interviewing young men or recent college grads from Morehouse, there is a certain amount of confidence and uh, stature that uh, does come with uh, being a Morehouse man. So I, I will I will say that uh, there must have been a lot there because you you exemplify that. Now, you did you study, what did you study there? Were you in politics or public service? I was, uh, I, I, I majored in banking and finance. Um, and I remember, I will never forget kind of how that happened. I was in registration line, uh, second semester, sophomore year. And I heard a voice, it was a deep voice. And he said, young man, what is your major? Turned around, it was a rather shorter, short gentleman uh, mm-hmm. with a big, full handlebar mustache. I said, accounting. He said, no. He said, the accountants compile the numbers and they bring them to us. And then we massage them. We apply formulas to them and we make decisions. You want to be in finance ready for my class. And I did change my whole life, changed my perspective on, uh, I was struggling at intermediate accounting at the time, but it really changed my whole perspective and trajectory. And I was in the first class to get a degree. There were seven of us to get a degree in banking and finance from Morehouse College. Yeah, that's, that's, so I was going to, to ask that. And when I was saying, you know, public service and that kind of thing, I think that's where uh, a lot of people think of Morehouse because of Dr. King or what have you, but the school is much broader than that. And clearly uh, you benefited from them, from it uh, specifically in the area of finance. Did you now, did you, did you stay in finance and did you yeah. graduate in finance? Yeah, I, I got, uh, got a BA in finance with a, a minor in cinematography um, okay. and, uh, and TV. Uh, I, and I took those courses at Clark College at the time. Those were those courses were, were being offered. It turns out I was in cinematography class with Spike Lee. I was going to ask. That. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, you know, I was majoring in finance. So what happened, because Spike was a year behind and we had already started cinematography one. And the professor said, well, you know, this is a lockstep program, new program. No one will break the sequence, blah, 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 blah. Second you know, cinematography two, the next semester, here comes Spike breaking the sequence, you know, doing all the things he said nobody would ever do. However, what I will say, Spike was, uh, he was not the most talented, but he was the most prepared. Mm. He knew what he wanted to do. 
He had, mm-hmm. he had already studied the great masters of film before he oh, arrived. Wow. And um, he, uh, he was very, very focused. So if I had to ever put my money on one person to go ahead and make it, it would have been Spike. Now, my professor, I see him at church today from time to time, and he would say, you know, you are my best student. I tried to get you to go to USC, and I was sending Spike up to NYU, but you wouldn't do it. Uh, and so it was just a passion of mine, something that I enjoyed, something that I thought was meaningful to me. And it's my, my medium of choice. Audiovisual is my medium of choice. Okay. So, uh, but at any rate, I, I was in that first class. I graduated uh, with a BA in finance. And then I went to work at a corporation not far from Chicago in this uh, suburb of Des Plaines, Illinois. Yeah. My father was ill at the time, and I thought I could go home and help out. I had been invited to go to the Wharton School for graduate school, but I wanted to go to see if I could help out with my dad. And I really couldn't help the way I thought. I think just being there meant a lot. And uh, he, he didn't talk to anybody for about a year. And uh, I remember one morning, you know, we usually read uh, on Saturday mornings. Uh, magazines, newspapers, whatever. And he spoke to me, first time he spoke to anybody, he spoke to me on Saturday morning. He said, I had left my first job. And uh, it was the winter in Chicago, had the worst winter in 100 years back then, 100 straight days of snow on the ground, winter of 78. Yeah, and, I remember it, yeah. And w- one day it took me three three hours to get to work and three hours to get home. And I said, that's, I'm done. Yeah. And uh, so I, I, I left that company. And um, my dad said, well, Calvin, what you going to do? I said, well, dad, I'm thinking about, you know, entrepreneurship, going to business for myself. He said, well, there's a White House conference on small business coming up. Do you want to go? I said, yeah. So we took our eight-week car trip together, and it was the first time we had a chance to bond as adults. And uh, oh, okay. that, it yeah. turned out really, really well. But I've, I've had a, a, a rather long and winding journey in, in, the, in securities and in finance and in investments and entrepreneurship. Uh, there was a uh, the first course in entrepreneurship uh, on the AU Center campus was taught by a gentleman named Bill Swift. It was at Clark College. It was called Starting New Ventures, at least during the time frame I was there. I was the first one to register. I thought it was, a, I went to the registrar's office at Clark. I thought it was a misprint. Okay. I said, is this right? He, he said, yeah, you know, this new professor come from Harvard Business School. He's te- I said, okay, sign me up. I told my roommates about it. They joined some other people uh, in the course. And at the time I was, you know, I was really, uh, I don't know how I did it. I was taking 22 hours and I was working two jobs. And uh, so I was constantly sleep deprived. However, our final for that particular course was negotiating a deal. We had teams. It was a Harvard method team negotiating a deal. And uh, somehow, lo and behold, I got an A and I negotiated the best deal in the class. Um, it's in my conscious, I suppose. At the time. Yeah. So, 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 so what's, you know, what, one of the things that I'm, that I'm hearing and that, and I think this is really important. So I went to, um, Jackson state university, which is an HBCU and, uh, you at Morehouse, but clearly if you know that the, the campus environment is Morehouse and Clark and Spelman right there together and, and Morris Brown at the time, physically all right there together. So, really a vibrant area in terms of, of intellectual, um, intellectual talent. And like you said, a lot of leadership coming through there. It sounds like you got really good nurturing there, but you leave, you, you were in public finance and you securities and those kinds of things. And so your first venture into entrepreneurship 
was it in that space or doing something completely different? Well, it was actually in that space. When I graduated from Morehouse, took the job in Chicago, and then eventually uh, my sister graduated, who's two years behind me. Uh, when I left my first job, I, after the trip with dad, I came back to Atlanta and hung out with, a, with one of my classmates. We were just pounding the pavement looking for jobs. Mm-hmm. And I got my first exposure to a job opportunity with Merrill Lynch. And I ultimately went back to Chicago and interviewed at Merrill Lynch, several locations in Chicago, and then came back when my sister graduated, interviewed again in Atlanta. And then last interview I had in Atlanta was uh, downtown Atlanta. I originally was recruited for commodities, but me and the commodity manager figured out I was not comfortable with commodities. Commodities and futures is the quickest legal way to lose money there is. Okay. So he said- <laughs> uh, trading places. If you ever saw the, the movie Trading Places, oh, yeah. it, it gets some good principles on the commodities markets, which we can talk about some other time. But the point is, I was more comfortable on the security side. Okay. I got a job at Merrill Lynch working here in Atlanta, uh, which I did for two years uh, right before the stock market. I left right before the stock market turned around in, in, in spring of 82. When I left, Jesse Jackson tried to recruit me to come to work for PUSH at that time for the PUSH International Trade Bureau. At the time, there was president. He had started this entity called the International Trade Bureau. Um, he got a gentleman who was a Morehouse man named A. Romeo Horton, who was Liberian. And when Sergeant Doe had the coup in Liberia, they put him in jail. But there was an mm-hmm. international outcry. Because he's president of the Central Bank of Liberia. And okay. then they let him loot. He came back to uh, Philadelphia because he had gone to Morehouse, then he went to Wharton. And so he became the first president. And he and I bonded. When I, I met him once, uh, one morning, I uh, was a member of the Peachtree Kiwanis Club. And uh, we would meet early and breakfast on Tuesday morning. And this one Tuesday, we were in a hotel. And I looked and saw these black people going in a certain direction. I said, What's going on? It was a National Bar Association national meeting, and Jesse Jackson was this keynote speaker uh, to talk about the International Trade Bureau. He had Romeo Horton with him. Benjamin Mays was sitting outside of the hall, of the hall, and he was selling his book, quotable quotes by Benjamin E. Mays, and he was signing them. And I bought one. Um, unfortunately, it got away from me. Yeah. Uh, However, Jesse tried to hire me. I turned him down at that point, and I went to work for Morehouse instead. So I worked for Morehouse for three years after that, uh, first as director of recruitment, and then as director of freshman studies and assistant to the academic dean, which basically means I would orient the students that I recruited into college life. And then I gave a grade for a course that students love to cut, required for graduation for four years, pass-fail based on attendance. Yeah, And that's basically when they had to come to chapel. And listen to speakers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, I got to know a lot. The students knew me because, and they, many of them, you know, the finance and business program just blossomed after I left. Many of them knew I had been to work at Merrill Lynch. They would come to talk to me, you know, in finance. They had plans and they had goals, and we would talk about those things. So it, uh, it, it really, uh, but during the time I was at Morehouse and I had left Merrill Lynch, that's when Maynard Jackson founded. Uh, when he couldn't get a job in Atlanta after his second term, hmm. he went to Chicago and joined a law firm in Chicago. While he was at that law firm, he was approached by a woman I met 
at Operation Push when they were recruiting me to come to work there, and I didn't go. Okay. Uh, named Joyce Johnson's. Joyce so she Johnson. and Joyce Johnson. Her name was Joyce Johnson. She was a broker for a company called A.G. Edwards. Okay. And so they together decided to found the National Association of Securities Professionals, NASP. And I was young, but I became one of the founding members of the Atlanta chapter and got involved early on. You know, got to know John Rogers of Aerial Capital. Many yes. people may be familiar with Mel- Melody. I met Melody when she was an intern with Ariel Melody at Hobbs? Princeton. Yes. Uh huh. Okay. Yes. And I knew she was going places then. So you know, I've been, I've had a long run in the securities business. I I credit the uh, being involved with NAS early on in my career has given me some very broad exposure because uh, I've done a number of things. Uh, when I left uh, Morehouse, I got back into the securities business because uh, I maintained my license all, all during that time. And I ultimately went to work for a uh, minority broker-dealer securities brokerage firm called Cartwright Securities. I worked for Cartwright Securities for about, about a year and a half or so. And then I just hung out my shingle as a consultant in public finance. Um, was, that, was that in Chicago or in Atlanta? That was right here in Atlanta. Okay. What happened was that NAS had our first conference in Atlanta and uh, made it one to make sure it turned out right. Cartwright Securities was one of the, you know, was probably the largest minority firm sponsor of the uh, conference in Atlanta. And we had a strong presence. Um, I met a gentleman who worked for Smith Barney. We, we kind of became fast friends. And then after the uh, conference was over, I remember getting a communication from Cartwright saying that there was a deal going on in Chicago, $600 million refunding for, for the Navy pier. Uh, and if we wanted to, he said, we should be in this deal called Mushir at Smith Barney. We were hanging out with all the, the course of the conference. I called Mushir and said, Cartwright told me to call you about pursuing this. And as we were talking, I was looking through the officers of the Mac Peer Authority, and there's a guy named Charles Tribbett, who I grew up with. Hadn't seen him in maybe 20 years at that point, but uh, maybe 15. And he said, we need to have, this was like on a Tuesday. He said, we need to have lunch with Tribbett at his favorite restaurant on Friday. What was his favorite restaurant? Uh, I forgot the name of it. It was a restaurant uh, by, it was by the Chicago River. It was okay. To look out the window and the Chicago River was there. Yeah. And uh, mind you, this was in the mid 80s. Got it. And so long story short, on Friday, we were with Charles Tribbett having lunch with him at his favorite restaurant. Uh, long story short, uh, Smith Barney got in the deal, but Cartwright Securities didn't. You know, and I had put this together. And then uh, what Mushir said to me is, look, I'm getting ready to leave. Um Smith Barney, I'm going to go over to A.G. Edwards. When I go to A.G. Edwards, I'm not going to forget about you. I want to work something out with you. Now, A.G. Edwards, where Joyce Johnson was as well. So I knew Joyce from my service with NAS. Long story short, hung out a shingle and uh, became a consultant in public finance. Um, and A.G. Edwards was my first client. And they were, they were a client of mine for about seven years. And then eventually, Ernie Green, who I got to know along the way, Ernie and I became very close, and when I when when I contract ran out with A.G. Edwards, Ernie was with um, Shearson Lehman Brothers, 
And he um, said, well, I want you to be, come over and be consultant to me. And I was consultant to Ernie at Lehman Brothers for seven years in public finance. And, and who Meanwhile, is Ernie Green for just for the audience? Because I think sure. that just you, you, you said that, but I, I think there's some significance there that, that's 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 important. Thank you, uh, Mark. Ernie Green uh, was one of the Little Rock Nine mm-hmm. who integrated elementary school, the high school in Central High in right. Little Rock, Arkansas back in, uh, I guess, around 1958 or so. And Ernie was the only senior of the nine. So he was the only one that graduated that year from Central High. And the next year, they closed the school so no other Black people could graduate. So Ernie had his uh, college education at Michigan State paid for by an anonymous donor. I don't think he knows today who actually paid for it. Mm-hmm. Martin Luther King came to his high school graduation Oh, wow. And he still has the letter that Dr. King wrote to him. But Ernie Green is um, somebody I call Mr. Timing. He's a friend. He's a mentor. He um, he's just a, a, an extraordinary became a civil rights hero in high school. Right. Sure. But he uh, is just an extraordinary human being. Uh, but he rose up in, in the ranks of Lehman Brothers before Lehman Brothers went out when of business yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, during the, the Great Recession. Yeah. And so working with him in, in public finance there, sort of, sort of what kind of deals were you working on or what did you learn from him? Oh, wow. Wow. That's a great question. Ernie had been, um, he worked in the Carter administration right. in the Department of Labor. He was under undersecretary or assistant secretary, but he was over the CETA program. Now, th- those of us who are old enough to remember the CETA program, it was kind of a summer job program for youth around the country. And as a result of Ernie's uh, giving away that money around the country to these different cities, all this federal federal dollars, he developed relationships with people who rose up. And many of them rose up in government. Many of them became elected officials. So when Ernie came back around, you know, with Lehman Brothers, uh, they remembered who, who Ernie was and what Ernie had done. So it gave him a different level of access and entree to people. And he had already developed relationships. He was a master at, at, at quickly developing relationships and nurturing relationships and connecting with people on a personal level. And, um, and, and that's critically important. And also because of who he was, he was able to um, operate at the highest levels of elected officials. He also was very close to uh, President Clinton. And I remember being with Ernie when President Clinton was, uh, I met him when he was governor running for um, president at the national, uh, it was a conference of uh, black mayors, national okay. conference of black mayors. Uh, and, you know, I, I just remember me and Ernie, we met at the airport. We didn't even plan it. Okay, and then we rode in together. We're checking in, and then he said, "Meet me in the bar." So I met him in the bar. He introduced some people from Arkansas, and then he said, "Meet me at this room at six o'clock in the morning." So I got there at six o'clock. I guess I was running a little bit ahead of Ernie. Knocked yeah. on the door. Guy opened the door, looked at me. I said, "Look, I can come back." Ernie Green told me to meet him here. I can, he said, "No, no, come on in." And the phone kept ringing, and it was senators, congressmen, all trying to get to Clinton. And he was, like, directing the traffic. His name was Rodney Slater. He eventually became Secretary of, uh, uh, Secretary of Transportation under Clinton. Mm-hmm. And he was just handling things for Clinton. 
And so I was sitting there and then this late, another lady came in, she, she sat down and then Ernie came in, he sat down, he said, I'll be right back. He went down the hall. When Rodney Slater came back, he said, he's ready to, he's ready now. So we all went down the hall and we met uh, Bill Clinton. Okay. And he walked in the room, he was tying his tie. So Ernie had that kind of access. Yeah, yeah. Um, when, when Clinton was inaugurated, he, he, uh, I was hanging with, with him and I had a chance to go to the White House and, and, and so forth and so on. And um, so, I mean, this is the nineties. Yeah, this this is this is in the nineties, right? Early nineties. Early nineties. Early nineties. Yeah, early nineties. I I remember there was. Uh, I went up to D.C. because he's he was based in D.C. Flew into D.C. Talked to his executive assistant. She said, "Yeah, you guys are going to go to lunch at the Bombay Club across the street." Um, <clears throat> And then he said, just wait here, Ernie will be out in a minute. Ernie came out. He said, yeah, man, you know, it's Bill Clay. This is Congressman Bill Clay, okay, uh, before he retired from Congress, who was head of the Education Committee. And he was also head of Committee on uh, on Africa, and which was uh, responsible for the African Development Bank Foundation. Uh, and it, as head of the Committee on Education, they had created this facility for HBCUs to finance, you know, some of their uh, infrastructure, you know, buildings and other kinds of things. Uh, and Ernie said, look, he's trying to get me to be on a board. I don't have time for these boards anymore. I'm on too many boards as it is. I'm not going to do it. I went to lunch. It was the three of us. It was like watching elephants dance. By the time lunch was over, Ernie was chairman of the African Development Bank Foundation, and he was chairman of the board that oversaw the, the you know, facilities for HBCUs. It was just amazing. I mean, that was the kind of, you know, the benefit of just being attached to him. Plus, I got paid for it. Yeah, no, it sounds like being with, with somebody like, um, like you call him Ernie Green. I'll call him Ernest Green because I know him from, from history. You know him personally. Is that learning um, the how to build relationships and how to be in the in the midst of deal flow or in the midst of of sort of how power and how deals are made and how relationships are built. So I want to want to fast forward a little bit from the early 90s to let's say mid mid to late 90s when you were a part of uh or one of three of an African American investor group who at that time owned the largest food services company in the United States. Uh, talk a little bit about that. Okay. There's a backstory to that, Mark. Uh, I'll try to condense it a little yeah, bit. Please. Uh, I also um, had, had got some exposure to the uh, pension fund consulting business. It was in a joint venture with a company called Callan, which is the largest public pension plan consulting company in the world. Uh, if you ask them today, they say, we don't do joint ventures. They did one with me at that time. But after that uh, kind of got blown up for political reasons, there was a period in time and uh, I got approached. I was on the board of NASP and uh, one of the young ladies that worked for John Rogers came to me and said, well, you know, Calvert, which was the company that was distributing John Rogers mutual fund, is looking to hire a black wholesaler. Now, most people don't know what a wholesaler is, but I, having worked at Merrill Lynch, a wholesaler is a storyteller who encourages brokers and other financial service professionals to sell their product to a broker's clients. 
And she said, well, you know, John said that you wouldn't want to do it because you have your own firm. And then I told John, I said, well, let Calvin make up his own mind. And then I had a, a gentleman who was also like a mentor to me who flew in from San Francisco to meet with me in Atlanta. And he said, it's okay. Go ahead and take the job. Go ahead and take the job <laughs> with these folks <laughs> that don't look like you. You'll be the first one, but they're going to pay you. It's okay to go ahead and make some money. You, you need to do that right now. I know what you've been through, so you need to go ahead and do that. So I did. And I did that for about two years. And when I left there, before I left there, when Bill Campbell was elected mayor here, um, my college roommate, uh, well, let me step back. Maynard Jackson did three terms in office and he decided not to do a fourth term. Right. He had brought down from Chicago from the law firm he worked at when he came back. He um, brought down a lawyer who he helped get to be partner at the law firm, then brought him down here to work in the office in the, when the law firm established an office here. Worked in that office for a while, and then he decided to run for his third term. While he ran for his third term, it was uh, the lawyer who he was one of the beneficiaries financially and business-wise of Maynard now being a mayor again because they got a lot of bond business. And then he eventually started his own firm, mm -hmm. a black legal bond firm, and they did extremely well. And then- What was his name? His name was Raymond Sales. Okay. And he eventually formed a company called Sales Goodlow and Golden. Okay. And they did very, very well. Uh, Sherman Golden is one of the other lawyers uh, who's a friend of mine, longstanding. And Steve Goodlow uh, has passed away. But at any rate, uh, so I was over at Ray's house one Sunday afternoon. And he said, I've got to diversify away from practicing law and become more entrepreneurial. Translation, my patron Maynard is gone. Yes. And I, that's my livelihood. I've got to find some other way to make money to support my lifestyle. So he and I sat there and we talked. And by the end of the football game, we talked through a strategy. I said, if you want to do that, I can help you do that. We talked through a strategy that um, we wanted to go into a recession-proof business. We wanted to focus on our community, which we knew. We didn't want it to be mom and pop. We wanted to focus on branded concepts. And because recession, we decided on food. And then he said, well, I can't. I'm a lawyer. I can't manage, you know, these food operations. We need to get an operator. So I went and got my college roommate who actually we played football against each other in high school. He went to South Shore. I went to Kenwood. And so when I came back to Atlanta, go to work for Merrill Lynch, he got a job opportunity. We were looking for jobs in Chicago. He got a job opportunity with Church's Chicken and became a district manager with churches and so forth. So he had come down to Atlanta with uh, for a checkers opportunity, okay, when checkers expanded into Atlanta. I heard he was here, and I was with another uh, friend of mine at the time, and we, I said, let's go ride through this, this, this checkers. I heard Dwayne is here. Let's go see. And we rode through, and he was back there. He was back there in the back. He, he was the manager doing his thing. I said, you've been here all this time. You didn't tell me you're here. I said, I got something for you. So he, uh, I had introduced, and so I introduced him to Ray Sales, but I was still working at that time with the mutual fund company. I stopped working it, and I would meet with another friend who was a fixed income portfolio manager with Invesco, big mm -hmm. asset management firm here. Yes. He said, my my guys just got through doing a big Burger King deal. They want to do another deal. 
but they need signs. So I introduced, his name was Cecil Callahan. I introduced him to Ray Sales and Dwayne Hurd. And then when I left the Calvert Group, uh, Dwayne and Ray were working on buying the Tampa market. But when I got Cecil involved, Cecil said, no, we need. So we then went back to churches and said, we're going to sell all the markets you have for sale. And that would have come up to 150 units because they were in the process of restructuring their balance sheet so they could go public. Okay, so they wanted to get out of the operating risk of the inner city stores. Okay, but they didn't want to have to sell off to mom and pop, you know, individual franchise. They wanted to find a master franchisee that could take down these inner city stores. It was a long deal. It was a hard deal. It was probably there's probably more money for me in the mini series than there was for me in the deal. But you learn things you could never learn academically. I mean, it was. It's very, the experience was very difficult, but very instructive, and it will probably benefit a lot of younger people that are considering entrepreneurship to know about the story. Uh, but what we did, we bought, uh, well, in the middle of us negotiating with churches, they got bought out by a private equity firm in California. Fortunately, the chairman said that this deal has to get done, that he was committed to. He called the um, new age of opportunity, that's what he called it. Because part of our plan was we were going to buy these stores, you know, and what we eventually were able to acquire was 100 of the 150. It whittled, the deal whittled down to 75 and came back up to 100. Um, what we did is when we bought them, 85 of the stores were fee simple. In other words, you know, we owned them. Okay. They made mortgages on them. The company that lent us the money made mortgages on in individual units bundled them up, it's what they call securitized them, and then sold them off to investors uh, as bonds. So you had a demand for these mortgages on the one hand, and you had the franchise, you had churches, well, it was America's favorite chicken. They owned churches and Popeyes, Taco Bell, some other thing. But they were pushing these units out because they were restructuring. They'd rather get uh, royalty income yes. than have to take the operating risk. So as a result of all that, we just hit a window of opportunity. It was like buying a house with no money down, but that's an oversimplification. It was much more complicated, but that's the basic concept. We bought the assets. The assets were income generating, and we used the income flowing from the asset, and the asset itself becomes our equity in the deal. So that's just for, so I can keep up here for a minute. That's you, Raymond Sales, and... Dwayne Hurd and Cecil Callahan. Got it. So okay. th- those were the four principles in that deal. Mm-hmm. Okay. And Dwayne was brought on to do the operations. Right. He was, okay. he was the, we made him the CEO. Got it. Okay. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and so, but at that time, I mean, was, had there been a, a, a deal that large in food service or in retail for African-Americans at that time? At that time, it was the largest franchise acquisition deal done by African American group in, in in history. Yeah, now that's you know that's awesome, and it's part of why I wanted to. I mean, there's there's so much here um, that's rich within your background, but I think one of the things that um, so outside of the the silliness of of what's happening in schools about CRT and teaching history or what have you. There's so much history that is right in front of us or right next to us that we are, aren't exposed to. And one of the things that, that I like to quote, one quote that I like is that 
uh, what people have done, people will do. And that's by Marcus Garvey. And what you are describing here is that within this is a, a it's, it's a deal, a lifelong in the making. But at the same time, this is a group of black men, two of them from Morehouse, from HBCUs, for, from Chicago and, and New Jersey, and doing this really big deal. And I think that's important for, for people to know. Now, outside of the, the mechanics of, of the finances of it, because I really believe that black economics is a part of black power, right? I, I believe they go together. You guys also were pretty ambitious in terms of things that you wanted to do within the community in terms of childcare and other things. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, and, you know, what the chairman, his name was Frank Bellotti, was talking about the new age of opportunity because he realized, you know, within churches, within the church's brand, you know, who, he realized who churches were. Uh, and actually, uh, Hala Madelmont was working at churches at that time. The, you know, who was recently at the Chamber of Commerce here in Atlanta. And their market was pretty much um, uh, low and moderate income black communities. I mean, that's that's the market for church's chicken. Mm-hmm. And they had a value proposition. And, you know, what we were coming to the table with, we wanted to provide opportunity for employees to get trained to become management. And opportunities for management to ultimately have ownership. So we bought 100 stores in five states. And what we were looking at was a strategy to have, as we broke it down into districts, for the management in those districts to buy those stores from us, okay? And they would own their district. And But they had to make a commitment. Our commitment as a company was that they had to also train and bring up the employees that had the, you know, the desire, the aptitude. They had to train employees to have management opportunities. Sure. Okay. And bring them along. And also, it's a strategy on how, you know, when you're in a cash business where somebody else ca- counts your money before you do, uh, you know, there's certain things you had to. Well, we were putting in a, a a new point of sale system. We committed to doing that. We put in some, we're putting in some cameras and some other control mechanisms. But we had a couple of challenges along the way that led to a situation where one of our partners began to divert some money out of the company. And you know, I, I put it this way: there were so many lessons that we we learned. Uh, one of the major lessons was understanding the motivations of the people you're in business with. Mm -hmm. Understanding their psychographic, emotional backgrounds. Okay. And, you know, so you hopefully will have some notion or clue on what they may do when they get in certain situations. Because one thing I will tell you, we had, we went through, we went through extremes, ups and downs. We, we had, it was a, um, it was an experience that that was full and took a great toll. Took a great toll on me. It took me almost ten years to really recover from that deal. Entrepreneurship is not for it's hard. Very. This was this is a high level of difficulty. In what we did with this, but I never, ever, ever for a second doubted that we would get it done. Yeah, 
Now, everybody would hit the wall at some point, and most of the time it'd be me to have to go back and get them, bring them back. Maynard Jackson was in our deal at mm. one time. I mean, it was it was a real journey. So, uh, but, you know, what I would say to young people, well, young people, old people, whatever, opportunities are there. And this is one thing I did want to bring out so you wouldn't have to bring it out. Please. I truly believe that we have all we need to get what we want for ourselves, yes. our loved ones, our community, and more. It's a question of connecting the dots. It's a connect a question of, you know, seeing where the resources are in plain view. They're right here. They're right. We have our community is so rich with talent and experience. We have all we need. You know, we 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 I, I tell people we we don't have to have, you know, somebody else in the background that's really doing the work. You know, we don't have to necessarily have you know we, we have all we need i just put it that way i'll just leave it at that so yeah no it's one of the things that uh and i'm glad you said that because it's something that you i've heard you say before and i think it's really powerful is that we have all we need to get what we want i i really think that our relationships are rich our talent is rich and uh we we have to i do think we need to build the within the to in the black community of building uh, that muscle of trust and uh, and and ensuring that we can bring talent together and start building pools of capital um, so that we can finance things ourselves. So I, I think there's there's a ton of lessons there, and um, I'm glad you're sharing this story here. And I, I I hope you can share it as many places and times as you can because it's it's um, the mechanics of the deal for those who are in finance and really interested in that are really important those who are interested in community there's a lot lot there and then you know even for people who study you know human movement and anthropology and those things about building lifelong um, relationships and reputations over time is is so much uh, within that story that's that's very powerful I do want to do do want to move to something else really quickly, and it has to do with the idea of talent. And you you clearly led a, led a a rich life, uh, Jesse Jackson, um, Ernest Green, and Maynard Jackson, Melody Hobson. I mean, there's it's it's a who's who of of Black history, but there's a person in um, Black history who we all know. Uh, who who was abundantly talented and uh, influential in American science, and that's George Washington Carver. What is what is something that we don't know and is missing within his story? Well, George Washington Carver probably is in the top three to five geniuses in modern history. Uh, he, Albert Einstein, um, and he were close friends. He. Uh, was befriended by captains of industry uh, during his time. He His contribution to American industry is the, probably the greatest unknown about Dr. Carver. He, he developed industrial lubricants. He developed, he developed a whole line of, um, of plant-based products that are being used in industry and for commercial purposes now. I mean, you know, you you talk about the use of, you know, soybeans, what he did with soybeans. And one of the things that's amazing is George Washington Carver, he designed 
the interior of the Model T Ford. Right. Uh, and much of his, his, his patents are owned by the Ford family. Mm. Um, and much of his history is being, has been archived at Emory okay. University. So, you know, Dr. Carver was, um, well, let me say this. Booker T. Washington, uh, when he got Dr. Carver, he knew it was kind of a trade-off, I guess, a, a deal that was cut with industry. Um, so they had access to his intellectual property, uh, I guess, in return for some support. Right. Um, for, you know, Booker T. Washington, because Booker T. Washington, he, he was controlling the asset, yeah. you know, it was on his campus, and, yeah. and, but he let industry have access, and they made hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, and probably billions and billions of dollars over the years on some of his inventions. Yeah, yeah. So thank you. Thank you for for sharing that. I think that's a really under or unknown story of of George Washington Carver. I mean, listen, I don't think anybody there's there's not anybody that that doesn't know him, but you know him for peanut butter. And that would be great. And things done with the peanut. That would all be good. But I I think that what's undertold about uh, many of our geniuses is their impact, not just in, you know, sort of a narrow way, but really what you're describing is is someone who uh, with his relationship um, with with the Ford family in particular was critical to the modern industrial age what we what what really sort of built out what we knew is what we now know as is the American economy and he's not really talked about in that that realm and then the other thing is is back to the we have all we need to get what we want I thoroughly believe that there's a George Washington Carver in every generation now yeah there's not there's not 20 George Washington Carvers don't get me wrong. <laughs> But at the same time, we do have to find a way to cultivate our our talent and and build it into that uh, circle of trust that you talked about. We have all we need to get what we want. I think somebody like Dr. Carver is is really important to that story. Well, I I thank you for for bringing that out of me and to share. And what I will say about trust, I think trust is really the key. You've you hit the you've hit the nail on the head there, Mark. For us. Our challenge is trust, trusting each other. And, you know, we've been conditioned in certain ways and we've had experiences that, that, that support, in some cases, distrust. However, we have to actively, actively work on demonstrating and exemplifying how black men in particular can work together uh, successfully. Uh, that's one of my greatest takeaways uh, from that experience is that how important it is to exemplify the ability to trust each other and work together. And because that's unfortunately has become, we've been socialized in such a way that it removes that natural tendency that children have to trust and collaborate with each other, you know, and play together. It, 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 it's been stripped away by how we've been acculturated uh, and socialized in some cases, um, and then that exasperates, and then we we have experiences that have been, I think, because of the way things have been set up, 
like, you know, zero sum game. Always has to be a win lose as opposed myth to focusing on the win, win, win. Yeah, the mental the the, the the myth of scarcity is one of the greatest um lies that have plagued our community. That somehow there's not enough to go around and you gotta get you I gotta get mine because there's not enough. Nothing could be further from the truth in my in my estimation and my belief and what I've known to be true. There is more than enough for everybody. Yeah. Okay. If everybody works together. Okay, uh, so you know it's just kind of some it's, it's a framework, a, a way of looking at things, and and that's really what I've you know have been focusing on lately with um, the five hundred one c three that I started and and to teach certain principles to young African American males and older African American males as well. But it's a framework on which to look at things, a lens. A, you know, a litmus test to determine if something represents an economic opportunity to you or not. And that's that's what I've tried to do. And so before we we before we wrap up and move on, what's the name of that 5013C? OK, it's Emerging Economic Equity Empire, Inc. OK, uh, Emerging Economic Equity Empire, Inc. We call it 3E Empire for short. And. Uh, we've 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 been around since 2019, and we're focusing on providing investment education and entrepreneurship uh, uh, opportunities and tools and skills to African American males, so that they can be capable of creating wealth for themselves, their family, and and their communities. Uh, and we think everybody in society benefits from that. I, I agree. So. Let me let, let me end there because I think that's a good place, but not quite the end because there's a couple of questions that, that we ask all guests. And uh, well, there's one we ask all guests and then I'll, I have one specifically for you. But I'll start with one that we ask of all the guests on the on the parlay in all blue is what does it mean to live well? Wow, that's a that's a great question, actually, Mark. I think to live well, one must be at peace with themselves. Hmm. That's number one, because you don't, you know, we fail to control, you know, what comes at us and and those, you know, the things that are in our area of concern, but may not be in our area of influence. So uh, what we can do is we can control how we respond uh, to the external stimuli. So uh, living well has to start with inner peace. Um, and in order to get there, we have to take steps as best we can to try to um understand the choices that we're making, you know, in terms of these environmental things we expose ourselves to or are exposed to and understand it. You know, sometimes we can control as long as sometimes we can't, but some, we at least want to understand what I mean by that. Fresh, clean water, sunshine, yeah. um, hopefully some clean, natural food where you know who your farmer is, you know where it comes from or you're growing yourself. Okay. You have some confidence in the food integrity. Um, and I would say, you know, just kind of other environmental issues, you know, try to stay away from environmental toxins and try to, you know, try to do the, your, your best about taking care of your body and your mind um, and, and your emotions and, and processing that and having some spiritual base, you know, having some some fundamental concept of purpose, why you're here. Uh, and and whose you are? Who do you belong to? Who do you have allegiance to? I mean, what is it you, uh, you know? How did you get here? And why are you here? 
what is it you need to do? So I know it might have been a meandering answer, but those are the No, but that's 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 the answer. It's your answer. What does it mean to live well? Now some great nuggets in there. Purpose, peace, food integrity, environmental, uh environmental in- integrity. There's a lot of good stuff there. One more on a different note, and it changed based on the uh the interview. So going back to the cinematographer in you, what is your favorite film of all time? <laughs> wow. That is a great question. There are two films that come to mind okay. um, just from my, my professional exposure. And those are the original Wall Street mm. okay, okay, and Trading Places. Okay. The reason I say those two, yeah. uh, those two movies is because of, and I was, I remember Maynard Jackson, when we first started the, the Atlanta chapter of NAS, he said, we're going to the movies. And he took us by eight of us, and he took us all to go see Wall Street, the, the original Wall Street when it first came out. We watched yeah. it together, and for me, it was emotional because I saw they captured the realism of some of the dynamics of what really takes place. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it really captured it because I was in it, and I so I could, you know, from my standpoint, I could I could relate to some of those things when they when you had these two brokers there, and one of them's throws a phone book on the desk and, and you know, it's like you're smiling and dialing a, a phone numbers, a phone numbers, a phone number. You just got to keep making these. I mean, it, and then when they cat, when they caught him and, and how people were your friend flip on you and all of a sudden and how they walking you out. I mean, it was, it, it was just certain. They captured certain things there. Trading places, trading places with Eddie Murphy. It, if you watch it closely, and you watch it, you may have to watch it a couple of times, but it basically breaks down for you how that commodities markets work and how, because it was based on a bet, a $1 bet that the two uh, partners made, whether you can teach these skills or whether it's innate. And that was right. what the whole bet was about. And they basically, in that bet, destroyed Dan Aykroyd's life, put Eddie Murphy in his place, they had this tension until they finally figured it out. When they figured it out together, they figured out how to take down the firm. And basically, because the, all the markets are based on timely access to information. And, and, and that's really how markets work. Mm-hmm. If you somebody can get information before you, yep. that's where arbitrage can exist. So, uh, but at any rate, uh, I, those are the two that come to mind. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, Calvin, it has been a pleasure. I really want to thank you for being a guest here on the podcast. There's so much that you've uh, given to us. You're going to have to come back and and give us some more stories about Ernest Green and Maynard Jackson and even Jesse Jackson. But for now, we have a lot to chew on. We thank you so much and you be well, sir. Mark, thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a great pleasure of mine. And all the best to you and the success of the Parlay. All right. Thank you. We appreciate you here at the Parlay in All Blue. Please tell someone about us. Share the podcast. Make sure you leave a comment. You can find the Parlay in All Blue at Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon, or Stitcher. Wherever you receive your podcast, you can find us there. Make sure that you add us as a favorite. Follow us or subscribe, whatever it is you need to do to make sure that you're plugged in. We want to say a big thanks to DJ Market G for allowing us to use his music exclusively on our podcast. We appreciate it, bro. Much love. 
Thank you again. I'm out.